when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Note, I didn't really say current events, uh, and I think that's because that's a core mission of the show, is to sort of like take us away from the daily churn and maybe get into some like broader, deeper topics. Uh, you know, sort of Austin, are we wearing the same shirt again? We're wearing the same shirt again! Yes! 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 Power play! <laughs> double word score! Double shirt score! Wow, this is strong energy. Strong energy! <laughs> five star podcast, on the table five this star Thursday, one time! We five got star it. shirt! Natalie Watson. I wish you would take off that sweatshirt and have this shirt on underneath. I wish well, we guess had- what? <laughs> oh my... <laughs> I went to Uniqlo this weekend. Where's your shirt from? Uniqlo? Target. Target. I went to Target. I actually was at Target. You were at Target. Two days ago. I remember. Because I ran out of clean clothes and I didn't want to go. (laughs) Because I didn't want to do my laundry. So I went and bought five. Don't pretend. Don't pretend. Don't pretend you've never gone to Target to buy clean underwear and socks and a couple t-shirts because you didn't want to go do laundry. (laughs) Don't pretend. That's a lot. That's a whole, that's just a whole wardrobe. Okay, now, I do have, once, I took a really early flight to Los Angeles for E3. Uh Yes. So early, I forgot to pack clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I got to the airport, and sometime at like 5.45 a.m. or 6 a.m., I was like, wait, what's in this bag? And I opened it, and it was like a charger, (laughs) underwear and socks. No clothes. <gasps> oh, my God. And Had you started so, to pack and then not finished? No. The night before, I've been like, I better get to bed early so I can get up early and pack. Uh, I know. I know. that That's bad logic. Nevertheless, no, I was I do like, the same surely no, I, I will get up too. at four in the morning and do this. Uh, and then I woke up not at four in the morning. But at like five, and I had to race to the airport. And then I got there and I realized, like, literally, I had not grabbed any of the clothes uh, <laughs> that, that I needed. I, I'd done laundry, I just hadn't grabbed any of it. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was in LA, and I had to have a friend of mine who lives in LA drive down from Hollywood uh, to, like, I was staying at one of the airport, one of the hotels near LAX. So, like, my buddy drove down from Hollywood to LAX area, and then he drove me to a Target. Wow. And my entire wardrobe that week was Target clothes. True friend. Um, it was. It was. It was. A, it was a great act of friendship. Um, See, you but also. I learned a lot about Target. You were just foolish. 
I am a lazy piece of shit is my problem. <laughs> so, you, you know, so you don't, at least you don't have it in your, in, this is not a, a situation where you have a washer and dryer in your apartment. Oh, uh, no, it? it's like four blocks away. That's okay. I'm just making sure. I just want to know. I want to like yeah, understand yeah, the yeah, level yeah, yeah. of of laziness. Yeah, 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 that's fine. I think four it, blocks. That's far. It's a little far. That's far. It's a little far. I have like a lot. How far is like, the Target? Uh, a bus ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I did was <laughs> I was on my way. So I had stayed late at the office. Austin and I were having deep existential discussions as we do, and I was sitting in the car driving home um i was i was taking a lift or whatever and then halfway through the ride i was like fuck it's like nine o'clock and when i get home i'm gonna have to fucking lug all of my laundry a thousand years away to the laundromat and sit there for hours because i have so much laundry and then i just changed the destination in the app to target and then went to target and uh Got it done. Took the bus home. And Kata working the boards. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this past weekend, uh, you know, you ever just have one of those days where you're kind of in a funk and in kind of a vaguely shitty mood, but you have no good reason to be in one. Like it's just you got a lot done during the day. Uh, It's a a nice day. And yet, nevertheless, you're just in kind of a weird headspace and you're finding it really tough to escape it. And then I remembered, holy shit, I had just bought Into the Spider-Verse the previous weekend. Good timing. Uh, and it was actually really cool. The I will say this. I bought it. I don't usually do this. I bought it off the Microsoft Store because basically huh. all the like ultra high-def Blu-ray features were on the Microsoft Store version of this. Oh, wow. So you didn't uh, need yeah, to... So like yeah, that's nice. Multiple commentary tracks, uh, outtakes, documentaries. And they're, they're pretty good. It's a pretty full-featured disc. Um, but I was like, I would bet you that Into the Spider-Verse is just what I need to sort of shake the weird energy around this day. And it turns out I was right. Like Spider-Verse has left me in a good mood for like the last four or five days. Uh, And it was like, I really expected this to be a movie that was maybe overhyped, but it's pretty much as like magical and creative and just like visually splendid as it was billed to be. Uh, is this the first time the, you've seen it? This is the first time. Yeah, I missed it in theaters. Okay. Um, and just real quickly, like, uh, credit for this one, like, all animated works is really tough to assess, and they're very mm-hmm. upfront about this in the uh, commentaries. Like, there is no one person who had the vision for every shot. Like, it's all, like, massive teams of animators, each putting their individual signature on different shots, uh, different moments. And so that stuff is is really hard to properly credit. Uh, this is a... Uh, is it Phil Lord and Christopher Miller? Uh, I think they wrote were, the original uh, like uh, script treatment, but did not did not direct the film. Right, uh, and they were known for the Lego Movie, and they were also taken off another movie we talked about a few weeks back, uh, Han Solo. Um, just, uh, the, just oh, Solo, Solo, a Star Wars right? Solo, a Star, yeah, please and be. <laughs> this film was directed by Bob Persichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Roddy Rothman, each of whom sort of represents a different discipline within the field of animation. And so it was sort of this uh, directing triumvirate from people who are bringing different perspectives. Like one of them is a storyboard artist, one's just a you know line animator uh, throughout his career. So that's that's kind of the team that put this together, and they're very quick to say up front that. 
that's a very like tip of the iceberg type crediting. And then every moment in the film is bears the marks of a lot of different authors. I wonder if one of the magical things – I didn't see this movie in the theaters either, Rob. I, I caught it later. But um, one of the magical things in the like days and weeks and even months after was various people who did work on the movie sharing like their minor contributions yeah. on, on Twitter. I don't I, – I unfortunately cannot point to like if there's a wrapping – like someone that collected a bunch of that stuff because there were what felt like dozens of like – Hey, I did this, and it was like like there's like a drumming sequence that someone like pointed out, like how they use the ones and the twos and like the animation. Like there's all these like different little details that like mm-hmm. you're pointing to, like that are are those like thousands of like minute contributions that add into the whole. Um, I'm 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 flailing. I just, mostly just like hopefully if you do a Google search, someone has done a better job of collecting it because a lot of that stuff that you're talking about does exist in a really granular fashion, and it was so cool to see those people have the ability to like yeah put their hands up and and take credit i remember one of the guys that like was chiefly responsible for like the sequence where miles is humming along or trying to sing to to a song early in the movie and like he broke down how he did that and blah 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 blah. so that stuff exists that is outside of like the special features material it just might take a little digging to to go find i bet someone has compiled that stuff because that was like one of the coolest things to see in the weeks after it hit theaters because it was just like you don't normally get that level of access or description of craft um and it was one of those moments where it was like, wow, this whole team is super excited about having made this stuff, about having uh, pursued some techniques that they would clearly like had in their minds for yeah. years or were pushed to figure out some stuff because of the overall ambition and goals of the of the work in general and that's just uh, you don't you don't get that from anything normally mm-hmm. uh, but outside of DVD special features or really kind of um you know kind of buttoned up uh, packages that go out on the main social feeds or whatever. Well, it was, it was just really cool to see it live on Twitter, which, you know, you you can you can see these people's, like, other works, and you can see, like, their sort of side projects. They're, like, fun. You can see sort of, like, their artistic personality, mm-hmm. like, on their Twitter feed, and then to see them, like, translate that into their... Um, into like their their contributions to into the Spider Verse was really cool because you can kind of see the background that informed it, and then it was just like a really neat way to for a neat place for that to live yeah. rather than in you know a director's cut or whatever that you might not be able to. I it's funny to use the word personality because for me that is such a big part of why I love this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I fell off the Marvel train pretty hard uh, and I know that people are super excited about Endgame uh, and there are obviously exceptions. There are things that are like, oh wow, this really stood out for me or I caught this on a plane and really liked it. Um, but by and large, towards the the beginning of phase two of the Marvel stream, what pushed me out of it was a sort of sameness of personality. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not the person who says like, the Marvel movies don't have a style or don't have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a personality at all. Um, I think that that's a, a really uh, – I think it's, a, it's honestly a, a – it, it As someone that is a huge – I get where it comes uh, sort from. Of like MCU stand, I, what, what I would say is that um, at a certain point it became a soap opera about characters – that happens to take place in comic book movies. Right. And I'm bored by the visual like, style at, at, is basically at, what right, I mean. And at, at a certain point, if you weren't invested in those characters or it didn't work, like it wasn't deviating from where it was at. It basically yes. like here, we're on, if you're on the train, it's just more of this train and the train's getting bigger. If this isn't working for you or you need something more stylistically interesting um, or you're getting bored of the style 
and the character drama and the soap opera nature of it isn't enough for you, then, you know, even and even the enters. outliers, even as they started to move into different genre work, even as they started doing stuff that was a little more out there in terms of uh, visual style, like Thor Ragnarok, mm-hmm. or things that were trying to explore slightly different themes inside of something like Black but it's Panther. Still pretty, it's, it still pretty. It has to be like, because still, you need even an Black even Black Panther yes. is about as far as you can like thematically push it, but it's still within and a certain lane. It, so much so, of why I yeah. loved comics growing up was because they did not box themselves in as much. Mm-hmm. Obviously, especially when you look at comics writ large, when you're suddenly talking about independent comics, but even inside of just a publisher, even inside yeah. of just, if you look at the output of Marvel in 1997, you're going to see a lot of stuff that's similar, but you're also going to see stuff that ends up sh- feeling distinct and different. Mm-hmm. And that was especially the case as I was kind of really coming into my fandom in my, in my college years and was like digging through past archives. Even a single character can can be rendered so differently over time. You look at something like the various runs of Daredevil or Spider-Man, and what you find is that some some you know authors want to want to treat uh, those characters as like you know um, bright and colorful characters who are fighting larger than life supervillains with superpowers, and others want to take them uh, at, at this kind of like quiet moment or mm-hmm. or kind of down and grimy New Yorker style mm-hmm. stories and and everything in between. You know, Spider-Man has been to parallel dimensions, has been a clone, has been a billion different things. And the thing that Into the Spider-Verse did was one, it felt in the canon of Marvel movies, it felt I know it's not in the same universe technically, but you know what I'm saying. It felt distinct in the way that some of my favorite comics growing up were able to feel distinct. And then two, obviously, it leans into the very idea of that being key to what makes these characters last so long. The reimaginations, the ability for one story or some core ideas to hit a wide audience, but but to do that by tinkering and playing with what's there and, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of ex- exploding what those core ideas are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does that visually, it does that through the narrative, and it does that uh, all in a package that I think is, is pretty remarkable in terms of its visual language and in terms of its storytelling. I think um, for me, the inter- there, there's a thing I'm working through my feelings about with this movie, which is that on my first time through, it is kind of overwhelming. There's so many gags happening. There's so many characters introduced, particularly like midway through the film. But to me, I think I really loved the first half of the film far more than the second. Uh, when it begins to turn into more of a comedy, like where this movie begins is where the movie completely won me over, which is that, you know, we, we really open on Miles Morales and his character and his struggles that he's going through in life. Uh, there's, there's the great opening sequence where like he's trying to sing along to his one of his favorite songs, but he knows like a third of the words, most of them on the chorus, uh, you know, but you have this series of you see him with his family. You see him in his neighborhood, and then you see him kind of like fish out of water at this new school he's at. And there's this great like tension in that, you know, he's clearly a really talented kid, one of the people that's sort of been like, you know, identified as, okay, you go to the advanced prep school, right? Right? Like the the school he's going to looks like it's a sort of mashup of like uh like Hunter College uh high school and like Bronx science maybe, uh, but it's, it, it's a very like, f- you know, fancy, uh, you know, public, public magnet school, uh, that, that he seems to be attending and he's not at home there. It's not his neighborhood. They're, they're, they're not his people that he grew up with. And there's also the element, and I think it's, it's very familiar to uh, a lot of people have been put in that position where 
if you are tapped to go to a magnet school or a gifted program, you go from being one of, if not the smartest kid in a lot of your classes who's like effortlessly keeping up Mm -hmm. to being maybe the average or below average in the new setting. And that is a, that can be a, that can be a trauma. And we see Miles struggling with that. He, he's like, he can get it. He can almost keep up, but he's always just maybe a half beat behind everybody. Uh, and that's maybe a lack of confidence or whatever. But the, the answer is he's trying to basically throw this away. He is trying to get out of this and sort of the other conflict that's set up here is that his father is very much a, you know, typical American dad in a lot of ways, like a, a, you know, someone who's very much work hard, bootstraps, do your work, uh, and stick with, stick with these opportunities that you've been given. Uh, and, and he's you know, a cop. Pre- yeah. And he's a cop. And he's, and a, he's cop. a cop named Jefferson Davis. Uh, yeah. Um, that's not the but movie's then the- fault. That's just, <laughs> that's just, uh, our good, good friend, uh, Brian, Brian Michael Bendis, the original, the original creator of Miles, of Miles Morales. Yeah. Because my, cause uh, if Miles had taken his father's last name instead of his mother's last name, he would be Miles Davis. Brian Michael Bendis knows some black people. <laughs> oh my God. He, I, uh, but know, anyway, I, mm, mm, I shouldn't drag him, but I absolutely will. <laughs> no, that's a, that's. I mean, that's a terrible. That's a terrible character to tell. His mm-hmm. dad is Jeff Davis. Fuck off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other pole, the uh, the other role model, the other voice in uh, Miles's life is his uncle Aaron, uh, voiced by Mahershala Ali. And Uncle Aaron is just the coolest dude in this movie. Uh, like, you can't see him and not, like, want to be him. And he's also living the very, like, in contrast to, like, the life Miles' dad's chosen, which is a tiny, cramped apartment, family, all that stuff. His uncle lives the, like, ideal bachelor life. You know, cool cool setup, good music, good, good stereo, uh, a heavy bag and, like, martial arts, like, uh-huh. uh, practice hmm. area in his, yeah, weird, uh, in his apartment. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's it's a cool place. And Uncle Aaron's very much there being, like, you know, you could just do whatever the fuck you want. Like, you don't have to, you you get to be who you want to be. And that entire, like, that story, that setup is a movie I would be more than happy to watch. Uh, and it really quickly outlets into this other story involving Peter Parker as Spider-Man, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is another interesting film that I'd be cool watching, which is that, you know, he runs into, uh, you know, a, a Peter Parker voiced by Chris Pine, uh, who promises to teach him and is killed battling Kingpin uh, as sort of Miles looks on. And he meets up with a parallel universe Spider-Man uh, voiced by Jake Johnson, uh, Peter B. Parker, uh, uh, who's very much kind of a sad me, sack. Peter B. Parker hyphen Darcy, as we've established in Be Good and Rewatch <laughs> Oh, my God. It. People should go listen uh, to Be Good and Rewatch It, where I – Well – where, where People should. Where I uh, – People should. It's good. Five-star podcast, five-star runtime, uh, where I unfold my fanfic about this Peter Parker and Mr. Darcy from uh, from from uh, Pride and Prejudice. Living on the Upper West Side. Upper East Side. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I appreciate the attention to, to detail. Okay. Thanks. Well, clearly not attentive enough. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you meet sort of sad sack middle-aged Jake Johnson, Peter Love Parker, him. as <laughs> Nick Miller, uh, who's like yeah. gone through all the Spider-Man shit and time has caught up with him. Like he didn't grow up in mm-hmm. some key ways. And 
has been disappointed by a lot of like the more he's like fine being Spider-Man the hero, but like all the shit about being Peter Parker in middle age has been too much for him. And so this is the, this is the other tension you have set up in this film, which is that uh, Miles Morales is trying to come to grips with his, with uh, these spider powers that he's, he's acquired early in the film. And he's got uh, sort of these two poles, uh, these two father figures. And then he also has this kind of disappointing role model in, Peter B. Parker. And I think that's a film that like that that's that's something I was completely bought into. And I wasn't like as I think about it, there's this turn to more of a straight up comedy with a lot of different parallel universe spider people who, mm-hmm. who pop up that I think takes the focus off a lot of these really satisfying stories and cuts into time, I think, that could have that I would like to see these stories unfold maybe a little more naturally, have more development. Uh, but I think the instinct that Lord and Miller tend to have is go for the laughs, make it absurd. And yeah. on rewatching this film, I wasn't, cause I, I ended up watching it twice in the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. I feel this little like gust of almost like sadness or regret when all the spider people show up. And I realize like now the movie is turned into something else. Yeah. For me, the keys are, are Aaron, uh, his father, Peter B. Parker, and then Gwen, who I think you need as the as the contrast to Peter B. Parker Spider Man, because I, I want all of those poles available for Miles. But but I'm with you that, and I enjoy those gags. I'm, I enjoy the gags of Spider Ham and and Spider Man Noir Noir Spider Man. Um, I'm a little less on board with um, the anime Penny B. P- Penny B. Parker, mm-hmm. yeah, who I don't know that they really delivered on like what anime looks or sounds like, and it's kind of just like a grab bag of like really broad tropes without feeling like it's giving a specific nod, even to the Penny B. Parker character who emerged in one of the comics once. Like mm-hmm. she doesn't look or act like that character. And it's also not like, you know, me, it's like not a great nod to mecha fiction or something like right, that. Right, right. And I just don't think the jokes landed for me there. Yeah. Um, I think the jokes landed for me with Spider-Ham. I think the jokes landed me f- for, for Spider-Ham. Spider-Ham killed me. Spider-Ham is very funny. Um, <laughs> all the way through. But that's also just you're putting great talent for it, right? He's voiced by... Um, John Mulaney. Who is great and is basically playing what if John Mulaney was a Looney Tunes cartoon. Which is just everything I ever wanted. <laughs> um, and that's a, that stuff worked for me as uh, in terms of comedy. But I think I'm with you, Rob, that like I want the Avatar The Last Airbender of this that just goes on and on and yeah. on and has lots of little character moments between those core characters. You want a TV show, not a movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to be clear, I did not mean Avatar The Last Airbender, the M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> film. Uh, you know, clearly something someone would take away if they've been listening <laughs> to, us. to our yeah. podcast. Big M. Night fans over Big, here yeah. at one waypoint. Huge. Um, but I do. But one of the things I do want to note, Rob, is that I think one of the things that the movie does super well with those characters who are, you know, Miles is looking for himself in all of these different people who are important to him. Um, and one of the things that it does well, even with the characters who maybe are, even with Uncle Aaron specifically, is that it doesn't simply make Uncle Aaron a devil on his shoulder. What it does is like indicate one, how does someone like Uncle Aaron get into what Aaron is into, but also. How is that is, – is Uncle Aaron's depiction of adulthood and selfhood more honest than 
Miles's father's and Miles's father's view of the world, which is one of like meritocracy and working hard. And like, you know, this is a movie for wide audiences and it's still at the end of the day going to come down closer to Jefferson's side of things, to Jeff's Mm -hmm. side of things than Aaron's. But Aaron is never positioned as like being purely someone driven by greed or driven by, you know, anything uh, less than actually like love for his family and honestly love for himself of a sort that Miles also desperately needs to learn in this movie. The big Mm -hmm. takeaway for him, the big, like the big moment is him finding faith in himself. Right. um, And deciding to be his own hero and his own, his own person. Yeah. Uh, And that sequence is fucking incredible. The what's up danger sequence is out of this fucking world. Yeah. Um, there's like a small detail there that I love and I'm going to shout out because it's one of my favorite things I saw from that big stream of Twitter stuff, mm-hmm. which is, you know, when the glass breaks, like at the very beginning of that sequence, mm-hmm. um, you might remember like the point in the story. One of the things that Miles has trouble with is letting go. He yeah. doesn't know how to let go of when he's stuck on something. Yeah. And in the end, he doesn't learn how to let go. He still doesn't know how to let go. That's why the glass shatters. If he could just jump off, the glass wouldn't have shattered. But he pushes through that and is like, fuck it. I guess I'm going to take this window with me when I jump off. And it's so good. It's such a small detail about how you don't just get better at things all at once. Right. But that doesn't mean you don't like take the leap of faith anyway and try to push forward. And that's it's a movie with a bunch of like small messages for young people mm-hmm. and – all together, it ends up being this really great portrait of someone coming to their own, a really great coming of mm-hmm. age story. And I so much wish that this movie had existed when I was like a teenager or a preteen. I would have just, I, uh, I can't even imagine how important this movie would have been to me if I was between like 11 and 18, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I still love it as it is. Yeah. Uh, I think the, I had mixed feelings about the Uncle Aaron thing a little bit. I wanted talk to y'all about this because I do think he's I don't I'm I'm with you. I don't think he's really positioned as the devil on Miles' shoulder. That that scene where he takes Miles yeah. to a hidden corner of the subway and abandoned tunnel and like they tag the walls together and they create uh kind of the rebellious logo for Miles this moment in his life, which is uh this really like incredible day glow uh mural uh, with no expectations uh, written on it, and then a black void uh, at the center of it in his outline. It's a really, it's a, it's a cool logo, but also it's just a really beautiful moment, right? The you know, uh, Aaron taking him to the secret place and sort of like respecting this, like where Miles's dad tries to curb, uh, you know, this this aspect of Miles, this this, this form of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron embraces it, uh, teaches him techniques, and. I think maybe my biggest regret with this movie, in fact, is that Uncle Aaron effectively disappears after this scene. There is a th- there is a major reveal later that he is, in fact, uh, you know, one of the major antagonists of this pe- uh, of this film. Uh, but I think that sudden conflict is really undercut by the fact he's effectively disappeared. That, that there isn't. There's never a scene where Miles and Aaron try to work through the ramifications mm-hmm. of like what they now know about each other. And I badly wanted that scene. You know, like yeah. what like what's Uncle Aaron's perspective on all this? And I also do feel weird that maybe like the most unapologetically like um Uncle Aaron in his character, in his affect, in his choices, uh in in his preferences, he is 
a very like he's unapologetically black. He is mm-hmm. a black character and he's also the one who I think is like the most unceremoniously discarded in some ways in this film. And I felt really strangely about that too, uh, because he's the, he's a cool character. I want to see, see more of him specifically. I want to see more characters like that and not positioned as like criminals or threats in some ways. And totally. I was kind of disappointed at that turn and then not really resolving the tensions inherent in it. So I will say, I, I will push back on that a little bit, which is that there are, Miles's dad is also unapologetically black. He's a cop, which sucks, but also there are lots of black cops in this world and in this country. I see so much of my father and my my uncles in uh, in in Jeff. I see so much, so many small turns of phrase, so many ways in which like m- masculine affection. Uh, mm-hmm. is is the limits, the restrictions on black masculine affection come into play specifically around the scripting of how the character's relationship with Miles works, but also the ways in which they push against those restrictions. The ways in which there's a great scene where where Jeff goes to Miles' dorm room and is like trying to get breakthrough. And I, that's there's nothing exclusively black to it, mm-hmm. but there is such a – I've had that moment so many times. And have had it with with members of my family who are both black and white, and there was something about the way it was depicted here that is that strikes true to a particular black experience of of parenthood and fatherhood um, specifically that just felt so 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 true to me. Mm-hmm. And so part of the thing that I want to make sure we do is not say ah Aaron is unapologetically black, and also unlike unlike Jeff Davis because Jeff is does not have a nice stereo system or something. I know that's not what you're saying, Rob, but I think that's part of the part of the effect of having Aaron be the cool uncle mm-hmm. is that you can underscore the the film is able to underline a lot of the traditionally the things that we think about as cool black masculinity, but the uncool black masculinity exists and Miles's dad is filled with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, and also Miles is. Miles is also like extremely black smart teen nerd, like who is struggling with his identity and is struggling with where he fits in. And like, obviously they, they code a lot of that in terms of like, you know, kid goes from, uh, uh, you know, Brooklyn uh, kind of uh, uh, residential into like downtown Brooklyn, a fancy prep school. A lot of it's coded in class, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of his relationships end up feeling like a black kid talking to white friends or white or white, you know, uh, professors or whatever. Like that stuff is was all very there for me. Um, and and part of, and this is part of why I wasn't so shook with the way that Aaron is discarded happens is because there were other black characters in this. The world in which, you know, the world in which Uncle Aaron is like Uncle Aaron, you know, scare quotes mm-hmm. because he's a friend of the family and is the one black character, I'm furious about it, right? right? But in the world in which this still ends with Miles being black, his father being black, his mother being Latina, like those are all, those are all important uh, things and they're all core to those relationships. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, Miles' mother s- speaks in Spanish almost immediately in this movie mm-hmm. um, and is is not afraid. This isn't a movie that's like, oh, we need to make her sound white and, and like very like. Or it's make you know her what I mean? speak English but with like a very Yeah, heavy or the accent. other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. 
Totally. Instead, just like let her speak Spanish. Let her speak Spanish. Right. Yeah. She's gonna speak Spanish in her house. Yeah. Like Miles is gonna understand. Yeah. Like he comes from a bilingual household. Mm-hmm. Like that's gonna be the thing it is. That's what it is. Right. And so because of that degree of inclusion, it I don't feel as bad when like one of these characters ends up being discarded in this way. I still would have loved more, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. I'm but it didn't it didn't stop me in my tracks the way it has in some other movies and similar situations. Mm-hmm. I also did feel like uh, Uncle Aaron's absence was felt like I mm. I see what you mean Rob by you know the movie kind of the pacing of the movie moving a little quickly from these sort of pivotal moments but I, I think that's just do, like due to the sake of, of time and, and they wanted to do so much in this film but I did feel like you know when when Miles is like trying to reach Uncle Aaron is like calling him and just like can't get an answer or he like tries to show up to the house or whatever like I do feel like that absence is felt throughout the film and that like they did have such a strong relationship that there is like a piece of Uncle Aaron that's been like internalized in Miles by like what you're saying Austin in the way that he learns to let go and learns to trust himself and trust his instinct and um trust his sort of like freedom in a way like I, when i think of the the like graffiti scene i think of like uncle aaron showing um showing miles to just trust in his like ability to create and be free and to like sort of just like freestyle this like expression of himself and not worry so much about it and then I feel like that translates into you know how he assumes the role of of Spider-Man so um but I do I do agree with you Rob that there 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 are moments where I felt like I just wish I could have lingered there like a for a few more minutes if not for just like a few more seconds like i just want like a just a little bit more time to the like the movie's really fast right yeah, like and that's a, like stylistic of like yeah. uh uh the, the screenwriters like if you go watch their previous works you know the um they are like the they're that's just how what they do like they're everything yeah. their scripts are filled with the films are filmed with are sight gags and like just not lingering or when they choose to linger like there's like additional weight because the speed of the work that they do um, is is always just has like a frenetic energy to yeah. it, um, which also allows like their work to often like skimp past like gags that don't work or work for limited audiences because you're able to move on to the next one so quickly. Um, and, it, it, and like the relationship between Aaron and, and Miles's father, I found to be really interesting. You know, I, I you know can't help but often like look at these things through the lens of like you know parenthood, and it's like they also represent like these two like competing interests when you're trying to figure out how, what you're doing in terms of like providing a path for your child for, which is like, mm. how much are you putting up guardrails for your child? Because you're trying to either have them find a better path than you did, or because you do, you like, you, you think, you know, or you do know it's better for them, but you're not sure how to communicate that. And how much is just letting your kid make their own mistakes, find themselves. And like, where is the in between on all of those things? Like, I think of small, like, I think of small things now with my daughter being two and a half where like when she plays with paint, um, she likes to put it all over her body and scrub it all over her face <laughs> and put it in her hair. <laughs> and I think that's really cute. And so I let her do that. And there are times where like my wife and I talk about like, well, what should we should we be telling her? Like, well, you know, like, you know, you're supposed to put it on your hands and then you only put it on like the paper and then you clean up your hands. And then we settle down. We'll just let her do whatever the fuck 
she wants. Cause like, she should just go ahead and be creative with, you know, how she wants to just play with it. And like, that seems like a really small thing, but I think that example is like, th- those just, those questions of like, what you do about that specific kind of situation with your child just grows more and more complicated as they gain agency, as the situations they're put into are more complicated. And then like where you as the parent fit in that relationship over and how much you should or shouldn't insert yourself is like, I think core to like what is represented by Miles's father and Aaron is like the distance between those two things and how you do or don't resolve them as your child becomes really less your child and more a person that you're friends with and you have a very close relationship with. So I found that to be like a really interesting tension. The movie is constantly pulling at between those two poles. Yeah, totally. There's, I mean, yeah, I think my inclination will always be, I will always want the, uh, diner scene and heat in every movie. Like if you like, I will <laughs> always advocate like, you know, there really should have been a moment where like miles and miles and uncle Aaron, I don't know, maybe meet at a diner and have a conversation <laughs> about how life brought them to this, to the opposite sides of this war. I will always be on that side. Uh, but I, I but think heat is also how many minutes long, two hours and 52 minutes long. And but I think it's each of those minutes two well. hours. <laughs> I'm Just with you. In 50- I, I'm with you because uh, this is for people for people who have listened to Friends of the Table. You know that in the last season we did one of my like go to goals was no alibis. I wanted there to never be a situation in that season where we didn't have a diner scene because, and this is I care about this in storytelling in general. Though I think there's there's exclusions to this or exceptions. Uncle Aaron and Jeff have two different views of the world. They are not misunderstanding something between each other. They have not um, – it is not that if only one of them had a secret file or had seen a photo or – there's no – there is no resolution that comes from that conversation. But the thing that – the resolution is that they realize they are at ends and can address those ends honestly and emotionally and can um, for the viewer kind of illustrate – that conflict and that that conflict is not a simple misunderstanding, but that it is an ideological and emotional and personal difference that couldn't be resolved simply by hugging it out. Like it would be nice to hug it out. I I think that like part of what ends up working in the end is that it's clear that this is a family that loves each other, but also um, it is – there is not that opportunity. It, you, it requires the viewer to make that that understanding themselves. That it is not simply a simple misunderstanding. That if if the identity of of Aaron had become clearer earlier, things still probably would have gone down in a bad way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have liked to see that version of the story too. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, the last thing I will call out here is a thing I liked in this movie. I think the movie's kind of making an argument here. Is that um, it's tough being Peter Parker, and like yeah. not just in a we like it is almost a cliche at this point of different adaptations of Spider Man where you show how struggling to make ends meet is, he is, how chaotic his his life is because of like trying to live a normal life alongside the pressures of being Spider Man. But what I find really interesting here is even the Chris Pine version, who's like. The younger, like, has his shit together, the mm-hmm. most version of Spider-Man that we meet in this film in some ways, uh, or at least the most shit together version of uh, Peter that we meet in this film. Even he, there's this, there's this moment, like, in these moments where he's, like, briefly alone, uh, we see he's exhausted. Like, there's a moment he just he gets his ass kicked and he gets thrown under a giant machine. And before he can get up, he just sort of, like, observes himself. Like, I'm, he's like, I'm so tired. 
And then he goes back to the fight uh, that will ultimately like claim his life. But when we meet Peter B. Parker, it's a few more years down the road. And he's just been kind of ground down by that. And this is the thing we don't often, Spider-Man kind of exists in this perpetually young and, you know, starting out in life state in, in a lot of tellings. Mm -hmm. And here, I think this film is really engaging with the idea of like being Peter Parker starts to look really different at like 38 Mm -hmm. than it does at 28. Right. Or, or 18. And it's, a thing I, I really liked in this film, that the, the Peter B. Parker is, is a guy who uh, never really did get any sort of financial stability. And that sort of kneecapped his ability to maybe start the other adult life shit that, mm-hmm. you know, he would have otherwise been into. There's this whole uh, unresolved tension of like he didn't want kids. But if you sort of look at the direction of his life at that moment, it's not hard to imagine why he might be hesitant. Uh, to, to do that. Uh, you know, it's not hard to imagine. A lot of people are in similar shoes where it's like, I don't know that having kids is really particularly feasible at this moment. And I sort of thought about, it sort of made me flashback to um, when they were talking on the Beast cast about the Spider-Man game. And Vinny was kind of, it was, a, it was a funny bit, but Vinny's talking about like, you know, Peter, get your shit together. Like, you're brilliant. You know, all your friends are rich. They're, they're, they've got, like, capital to spare. Like, why are you, like, always behind? Why are you Why are you kind of a deadbeat across the board? And I kind of like that this movie is addressing this, this notion of, on some level, Peter wonders that, too. Why is it always like this? Why is everything kind of turning the shit in my hands except for me being the hero? And I think that's a cool angle to take Mm -hmm. with Peter B. Parker in this film and sort of catching him not at his peak as Spider-Man, but when the like, you know, the middle age, middle age and the doubts that come Mm -hmm. with it are starting to really creep up on him. Yeah, I would say the uh, the oh, go ahead, Natalie. Well, I, I'll be really quick. I, I was just going to say that the the sort of dra- the drama of Peter B. Parker has such a levity to it that it feels so heavy and real as opposed to like every iteration of Spider or recent iteration of Spider-Man has some sort of like, oh, will Spider-Man and MK stay together? And the uh, sort of... Re- MJ. What did I say? MK. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, is it time to admit something? No. Are you Spider-Man? No, it wasn't my slip. Are you Spider-Man? Do you know Rob, if, is mm-hmm. Rob Spider-Man, Natalie? I do know did Rob's sl- middle name. That's true. Remember what I... Uh, without <laughs> being told. <laughs> Wait, are you I- Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> um, with M- <laughs> Spider-Nat doesn't have the same flow as no. Spider-Gwen, unfortunately. No, it doesn't. Not great. I don't want to be a fly. Ugh. Yeah. Um, but you're saying they, so they all center around this dilemma of, like, will he and MJ make it? Yeah. Right, right. And and it's always, like, it feels so... It does. It, the stakes never feel very high. Like, you always sort of bet on, on the resolution um, because it's a Hollywood movie and, and they're not going to, you know tear down the sort of romantic illusions of this world. And in Into the Spider-Verse, just seeing how uh, Peter and MJ 
like their sort of relationship at that point in their lives just it, there's such a heaviness to it and it feels so much more um like dire in a way that uh it just worked for me um in a way that that it I had never really cared so much before um and not to say that I'm like a huge Marvel fan but I have seen a bunch of the Spider-Man movies and I just like all of these I don't know for the most part the sort of romantic uh ties in each of these films are just like they're there for like for a push and a pull mm -hmm. but they're not really you know you never feel like they're that much in jeopardy. It's no pride and prejudice. It's no pride and prejudice is what I'm saying. <laughs> I have a fic you should read. Oh, yeah? Uh-huh. Send it over. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to say that the – if I think uh, bringing up Spider-Man for PS4 is like an interesting point because I think it's like a good pink companion to Into the Spider-Verse in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think it's nearly as good as uh, Into the Spider-Verse, but it is a version of Peter Parker that – is playing with the same ideas of, oh, he's been Spider-Man for some number of years, you know, I, I don't know how long in the timeline, but let's, you know, at least five as close as 10. And like his relationship with MJ, they're not together anymore. Like they broke up, like she got tired of his shit and <laughs> kicked him to the curb. Mm -hmm. And like the the game picks up, like he understands what being Spider-Man is. It's not all that great actually for his personal life. And the Spider-Man part actually isn't all that uh, great either. Um, and it's a story with Miles where in this first game, at least, he is uh, sort of functionally acts as an origin story for how Miles comes into the picture and some clear setups for him being very involved in, you know, whatever sequel they do. Um, but if you enjoy in the Spider-Verse and some of the, like, the themes of, like, and sort of, like, a, a functionally arrested, like, Peter Parker and, like, the struggles of being... Spider-Man, in which, like, things don't actually play out. Um, like, I think the, the PS4 game, like, really plays with your expectations of the mythology of Spider-Man in ways that are really surprising. Some of the stuff that happens at the end of that game genuinely shocked me um, with, like, characters they were willing to sort of part ways with, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if you liked Into the Spider-Verse and you somehow haven't played the PS4 game, I think you would actually find it to be, like, thematically similar in some really interesting ways. And it's a good game. Hmm. Cool. I did not play it. I played a bunch. Good did talk. <laughs> <laughs> Sp look, Spider-Verse has an edge over it, if only because it doesn't have an hour of the film where Peter Parker is activating security cams. Like <laughs> True. You know, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Not not right. great filmmaking. I, I'm so uh, curious. Um, <laughs> I'm so curious if actually the sequel will get into any of the tension around his father being a cop as we get more like do we get J. Jonah Jameson being like fuck Spider-Man and then the police hunting down Spider-Man oh, which is a thing that's happened a lot in the comics over the years yeah. right like that the police versus Spider-Man is like a well established subplot yeah. again and again every decade and I could imagine a really good movie that is that but then Jeff Davis being like but I'm but I'm a cop I'm, yeah. a, I'm a good guy why are my cop friends out to kill Spider-Man, my son? Um, well, he doesn't know, right? No, he knows the end of the movie is him learning. What? He does the thing. He, what? Oh, my God. What's he do at the end of that movie? He hey. helps Miles build a tribute to Uncle Aaron. Before that, when he comes out of the, the thing. 
he hugs Spider-Man. What's he say? Love you, Dad. He doesn't say love you, Dad, but he just, he says the exact thing that he said earlier at, during the drop-off scene, right? I have to like get a script now because this is like one of those things that was like very okay. Hold on. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't feel like I. I, I don't think, think my takeaway. There's wrong, even the read. Actually. There's even he. You even get his father like looking at him like, wait a second. Oh. I need to like. It's been a minute. I, know I mean, maybe I suggested that he has an inclin. An inclination, but I didn't. My takeaway from that scene was not that need to like, find like the dad the figured it out and now he's being quiet about it. One second. He doesn't seem like a guy that oh. could hold that in if he had figured it out. Yeah. I think he's suspicious. Yeah, I think he's suspicious, and the second movie is going to be a in, directly involve a sequence where he explicitly finds out. He mm-hmm. says, "I need to." Oh boy, I'm pulling I'm, it up. Yeah, you should pull it up. I should pull it up. Should we include light spoilers? No. <laughs> but yeah, I guess at this point. There's already been spoilers. Mm. Oh, wait, this is. It's not really a movie you can spoil. I mean. <laughs> I turned on my sound. I was like, what is, who's, who's reading? And the answer is the Vice is currently streaming the reading of the entire Mueller oh. report. <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> I think they said so far, because there's two sequels in development, there's a spinoff. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Focused on like various women in the Spider Verse world. The yeah, Gwen the, the, the Spider Gwen movie. Yeah, and then um, the sequel is supposed to be like directly Miles and Gwen as like a team up, something, something, something. Of course, they'll get together. Yeah, something. something Do you still something. hear me, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good. Okay. Is Gwen? I made the mistake uh, of MJ. No, different people. Different no. people. MJ uh, is not. Is, in is this she way. functionally standing in as like the romantic oh, interest? Oh, right, like, right. Yeah. Because why would Miles have an MJ? Right, Miles doesn't have an MJ. MJ yeah. or sorry, MJ was in this movie. Miles doesn't have an MJ. Right, 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 yeah. right. Right. Or he does. It just it's Mary Jane, Peter's romantic yes. love interest. Yes, who is yes, just yes, yes. In yes. his life as a person. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Did they completely undo the Gwen Stacy like colossal shit. screw up that Spider Man? No. Uh, I don't know what Kata the current state no. is in the comics. No. So, like, like main timeline Spider-Man in his past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, sorry, sorry. I know what Stacey. the... Yes, I know what happened to Gwen Stacy. It's, like, the defining moment of early Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. But I don't know... It is, like, the thing that double teaches him, that changes what great power, uh, you know, uh, requires great responsibility actually means. Um, but... And it's fucked. It's a. It's it's fucked. But I actually don't know if the current Spider Gwen is just a different. Is she a different, different universe. universe as in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Austin, you figure out what what no, transpires. No, the end I, don't, right. I don't. I don't understand. See, I, don't, I, I don't think I, I'm now looking at it like what did what did I read? I was so certain in the theater about this. Yeah, and now I'm like, no, oh, he, he's not wrong. sure. He he doesn't fully know why why this this little Spider Man is hugging has hugged him, him and uh, said, but, Love but you. he does. Mm. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on that note, that is into the Spider Verse. We talk for hours more. Uh, if only you know, if if there were a podcast where we could do that, um, we would <laughs> happily talk for hours and hours about into the Spider Verse. Do you remember the uh, release order of this, Rob? Um, this is before. This is before. Oh yeah, well, this is this is the before time. Okay. Well, hey, mm-hmm. let that be a little bit of foreshadowing about <laughs> what happened. Join us what next week. The shock to. ending. Yeah, join us next, next week to be good and re- rewatch it as we talk about us. Yeah. Correct. Um, and us. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. We will take a quick break here, and uh, we'll be back with a discussion of some uh, political and tax shenanigans. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, we're back. So... For our next story, we we're going to talk about a little bit this week. Uh, Austin, you singled out another ProPublica piece, uh, yeah. an investigation into a not necessarily short-lived, but uh, an unsuccessful initiative by the IRS to go after uh, high wealth, um, like high, like high wealth people, high wealth individuals uh, for back taxes. Uh, for for hidden ta- for for taxes unpaid uh, for hidden earnings, uh, you want you want to tell us a little bit about what the story was and why it caught your eye. Sure, I mean it caught my eye because it's tax season, it's tax week. Taxes should be filed, or, or you should have gotten your extension by now if you're in the U.S. Um, and uh, they suck. I like I like paying my taxes. I'm happy to pay my taxes. I wish less of it went to uh, a, an international terrible war machine, and more of it went to like infrastructure and schooling and healthcare and things for people that I care about and things for people I don't care about, but still think that they should have a, a decent life. But as far as taxes go, I think, generally speaking, happy to pay them. But a lot of people, a lot of extremely wealthy people, a lot of people who have the amount of money that I can really genuinely hardly consider, like I don't know how to wrap my head around billionaire status. I don't know how to. Um, They don't like to pay taxes uh, and have uh, at their disposal techniques and processes and loopholes that prevent them from paying a meaningful share of what they make. Um, and this ProPublica story, which is called The IRS Tried to Take on the Ultra Wealthy, It Didn't Go Well, uh, which was by Jesse Eisinger uh, and Paul uh, Keel uh, for ProPublica, um, digs into a particular uh, – uh, oppor- not opportunity, a particular – like set of goals, a particular operation that the IRS tried to uh, uh, pursue in the late 2000s through the 2010s um, as part of a larger operation uh, and the particular case that they that they tried to go after failed and the larger case has also kind of – or the larger uh, mission has also kind of failed. Um, it tracks specifically the case of uh, Georg Schaeffler who is a billionaire auto industry like uh, air basically who in the early uh, – in the mid-2000s um, uh, became – sorry, in the late 2000s became – the actually, I guess it was the early 2010s. Now that I'm thinking about the timeline, uh, became the target of an investigation in which the IRS uh, special there's a special task force which was called what the global uh, the global high wealth industry group um, identified that he had made something like five billion dollars of income that he had not reported while he was living in the U.S. Um, and that on that five billion he owed about 1.2 billion in back taxes and then spent seven years trying to get that from him. And in the end, he settled paying only tens of millions of dollars. This is that amount of disc- discrepancy is so we don't wild. actually even even know if they paid the tens of right, because at the right. end of the yes. story they actually caveat that actually we 
We just think that we just know that the IRS proposed a settlement of tens of millions, but there's no actual proof that they actually pay anything. It's possible they just appealed that even further yeah. down. I, Sorry, I didn't mean no, to interrupt. Please, like, no, please, no. I got totally to the end right. and noticed that bit was like, fuck. It is, it is such a fascinating story. It's, it's, it's technically, I guess, a long read, but it's not all that long. It moves pretty, it moves at pace and outside of a few areas where they're digging into the particular loopholes that he uses, um, it is a great profile on someone who is ultra wealthy mm-hmm. and the ways in which they have methods of keeping that wealth um, from... Uh, the hands of 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 uh, governments yeah. by slipping through by using um, the one by having banks be on their side yeah. and having banks basically go to bat for them and do things like uh, uh, offer them loan forgiveness and and cancellation. Yeah privately, quietly, in such a mm-hmm. way that they don't pay taxes, which would not be available for you or I in many circumstances. Right. Um, there are there are programs in place post the financial crisis and the housing crisis to protect some people who, you know, had their house um, uh, foreclosed and then were able to not get hit by the, by the taxes on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many of us, that is not the case, especially if we took out like a small business loan or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But for the ultra wealthy, they, because the banks themselves would be hit by that. They are happy to forgive that loan kind of quietly rather than have these people go completely bankrupt and leave the system altogether. Right. Um, and also, something someone like this guy can afford an army of lawyers and accountants against the IRS, which, believe it or not, is not like a particularly well-funded institution relevant to something like the military or, or, or you know, other uh, services. Right. Um, There's a great quote that's like, uh, the IRS, uh, here it is. IRS auditors historically have been more like high school physics teachers trying to operate the Large Hadron Collider. Yes. Um, which just tell, paints such a picture of, you know, the arsenal of of resources that the ultra wealthy have, and how incredibly convoluted and complicated they um, they write these. Uh, uh, transactions to be so that it takes years for the IRS, for their team of agents to piece together one. Mm-hmm. And there are, I don't know how many, you know, like it's, it's just all, all fucked up. It is all fucked up. Um, the thing, the, like, one of the key things about this story is that like, there's nothing new here for those of us who understand who, who f- know this to have been true in a general sense. The ultra wealthy, by by uh, value of their wealth, are able to protect their wealth in a way that you and I cannot. But it is still fascinating to see how this specific effort to move in was, at a moment when this guy was ultra vulnerable, still failed. And I don't know what to do with that outside of talking into a microphone and saying that we need to get better at employing people at a at a national international level to go after these people. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, it's a well, little hard to do that when yeah, uh-huh. those 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 teams are being absolutely gutted. Right. Going from a team of hundreds or promised to be hundreds of people to down to like 50 something. It's like 50 something now, right? Yeah. Uh, Rob, you sounded like you had a solution to the problem of ultra yeah, wealth. No, I, I, I think there's a few different there, – there's a lot of different threads to this though. The first is that one of the reasons the IRS can't keep up with all the arguments that people like this are making is because our tax code 
yeah. is structured to shelter the earnings of people who have access to capital. To like a lot of the global financial system makes it easier now to move capital around than it has ever been. There are now a lot of tax havens that exist that are easy to move money into. Like we've we've right. closed down the uh, Swiss bank account loophole to an extent, but that doesn't mean that like that market hasn't moved elsewhere. So there is money moving to places that we can't actually track what's happening there or uh, how much there is, and. So I think right from the beginning, you've got a tax code that is structured in such a way as to be intentionally Byzantine in a way that the IRS itself can't effectively navigate, but expensive corporate accounting companies can yeah. and do. And so that is the thing is like the, the, the structure of the tax code is to disguise and conceal uh, wealth gains and income for already rich people in a way that the government itself cannot comprehend or effectively administer. And frequently you'll hear, well, we should simplify the tax code. Mm -hmm. And the deal with this is what we should go to is a flat tax on income. And then, you know, obviously that's more fair for everybody. So it's kind of the, A, you can keep the Byzantine tax code that everybody hates, that makes it a pain in the ass uh, for ordinary people to file uh, year after year. Or here's the alternative. We go to a flat tax where everyone, rich or poor, pays their share of their income. Uh, Always Uh, a huge asterisk asterisk on that, too. Quick quick question. Uh, Do rich people mostly make their money from income, Rob? Great question, Austin. Uh, no, I think if you had to <laughs> divide a to divide a like really crude and broad class line in America right now, uh, and perhaps the per, perhaps the world, it is people who work for their living, even mm. if their wages are extremely high. Yeah, and people who have a lot of money grow among their assets without working, and predominantly, even if you are someone who's making a million dollars a year, the system does not favor you. In the way that it favors somebody who has a million dollars or millions of dollars a year appear in the valuation of their total assets. That money, we want to make sure we don't fuck with it. We don't charge people for it. Uh, we don't even track it particularly well. But by God, if you like show up to a job and work it and get paid, you are going to pay every fucking cent you owe. And this is like a key distinction that I think many have failed to make and is so important in understanding what the state of capitalism is today that for someone who let's say i wrote, I wrote a book tomorrow and this is a, a relevant conversation right now because of some other conversations happening in the political sphere let's say i wrote a book tomorrow and everyone who listens to this podcast went out and bought it and everyone who follows me on twitter went, went out and bought it and i go like thank you so much i would probably make a couple million dollars right that would be and that would be cool for me if a person who is making that same money through assets, through uh, uh, certain systems of investment, also made that same amount of money, they will have made more money than me because I will be taxed differently on that income. Right. Um, and that is fucking wild. And and so in this way, this is kind of why I, I think that there is still room in this country for – uh, a politics and a rhetoric around class as long as uh, that is uh, – obviously, this is like not a surprise if you're listening to, to this for me necessarily. But because I actually think that there's a bigger tent here than what people suggest, right? That like when you look at socialist arguments, I think people tend to say – not people. 
centrists tend to say, not that centrists aren't people. I want to be very clear. I think centrists are people and people can be terrible. Like they could be <laughs> centrists, for instance. And the a lot of those folks will say that like there is not a big enough bucket of people who are compelled by the sort of socialist rhetoric around class structure. Um, and that you need to appeal to to other categories. And I think one, I think a good politics is intersectional. It understands identity as not just being about uh, any single axis of of uh, personhood. It, it incorporates questions of sexuality and race and ethnicity and nationality. It, it understands that you know you can have two people who have the same income level and that they can have wildly different lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I do think, that the argument from the left around class has a broader appeal than it is given credit for because of that one clear, very broad and very strategic class divide. That is, do you work for your money or do you, or does your money work for you, mm. right? And if you're in that latter category, you are in a, you're a different type of, of, uh, of wealth haver than you are in that former category. And for most of us, and especially for the people who listen to this podcast, knowing what I know about the people who listen to this podcast, like you're in that that first category of people who are working for working for their money and are and barely able to still make it, right? Barely able to keep up with your bills, barely able to uh, live a life of of comfort, not even of ease, but of just like hey. Not I'm, living paycheck to paycheck. paycheck. Exactly, exactly. And for those folks, like I think it is it, it is. Stories like this are are useful because I think they help illustrate exactly how far off we are from economic uh, equality. It is not simply the world where if you work hard at the job you have or you pursue your passions with vigor that you will ever become someone like this. Someone who literally because of the wealth of his family and the connections he has goes from being someone who has who's literally almost bankrupt back up to being a 15 billion dollar uh, uh, you know ultra wealthy dude in a matter of years because of behind the scenes favors because of governments going light on them and because even efforts to reform and uh, uh, and invest in policing against the ultra wealthy dodging taxes run up against the the limits of what reform can do. Uh, I think that to me is maybe the, the answer I actually have for the question I said before, which is like, how do I do anything about this besides just talking to a microphone? Is that it's to advocate for something that isn't just we have to give the IRS more money. You need a more radical reshaping of the financial system internationally and and nationally. And you, you it cannot simply be we need a task force. You know, you know like that yeah. isn't enough. Um, we need to rethink how financial instruments exist. We need to rethink how markets are uh, allow for this entire class of people to exist. And we need to like push for that in a way that is that is brave and that is not. Not we don't cow to to rhetoric that demands us, you know, uh, etch out some space, some alcove for the good billionaire that doesn't exist. It doesn't. Well, that's why I can't help but read this article and think back to that um, sort of viral bit from a couple of months back where uh, that big meeting of billionaires in, in Davos, yeah, where they yeah. all get together and uh, <laughs> tell each other how great they are because, well, we're all being so philanthropic and we're d- doing good things with our money and look, we're, look, malaria, it's gone, um, which is good, you know, great. Yeah, get rid of malaria. Like, that's that's great. But, and then there was that one academic or historian, like, on a panel that, like, kind of, like, pumped the, pumped to the brakes and was like, what? You know what you people should do is just pay your fucking taxes. <laughs> and 
there was like there was like a billionaire in the audience who was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I give lots of money to charity. He's like, yeah, but what if you just paid your taxes instead because you're choosing where that money goes? It'd be better if just like you just gave us that money and like we did stuff with it. And um, I couldn't help but think of if you I can't remember that. He was also like on Tucker Carlson. Oh, like, is this it guy Anand was Garrett Herodas? Sure. Uh, I, no, it was, it was Rutger Bergman yeah. uh, is his name. Okay. Uh, He's can, an American historian. Yeah, if you just do a search for Davos, D-A-V-O-S, billionaire's historian, you will get this. You'll, <laughs> you'll get, get clip. it. It's a great it's clip. A really, it, it's like a really illustrative moment of like where like the rhetoric falls apart when you even confront people who position themselves as well-meaning or even yeah. leftist. That like when they are actually confronted with like the structural change that are required on their personal equitable behalf they blah, but I, but look at you know and that's you know that makes this whole discussion right now that is happening over I like was, how much does bernie sanders give to charity right. uh, or beto, beto o'rourke give to charity um which is just a massive distraction from like who the fuck care i mean yes you should give more to charity sure. if you're making millions of dollars but you know what we should just take that money and do things to better society it shouldn't be a choice on the behalf of people that have millions and billions they should just have to give it as a result of the fact that they have that money in the first place also can't you just write off like aren't charitable donations like that's a tax write off isn't it that's yes. the racket that's, that's the whole, that's the racket. The whole is thing the <laughs> this week when you I, I was literally about to bring up the fact that fucking all these billionaires are lining up to do Donate to fucking Notre Dame or whatever. They've raised a billion dollars to rebuild Notre Dame. <laughs> a billion no, uh, fucking dollars to rebuild. But that one motherfucker a- was like, I should get 90% deduction on my donation uh-huh. to build no- rebuild Notre Dame mm-hmm. rather than the usual 60% charitable deduction. So even then, like, this is how people like this operate. Like, they're like, yeah, I'm a philanthropist, but really my philanthropy isn't valued highly enough and it should be used more to offset my tax liability. Nice cathedral you got there. Shame <laughs> if it didn't get rebuilt properly. God. Like that's that's the kind of shit we're up against. The um, specific quote from Bergman, really quick, because I just think it's so good. Is it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. Well, look, if you just got these water drones and just put it over <laughs> that cathedral, just is anyone is anyone listening? Is there an app? Can we make an app? <laughs> Fuck. So Fuck. I mean I uh, mm, you know what? I'm just gonna put I'm just gonna say it once. I'm just gonna I'm gonna put Hillary Clinton on blast real quick and we can move on. I'm just gonna real quick because oh, we've been we've been holding you back, Austin. Just don't not not to Hillary, <laughs> Austin. Don't do <laughs> one it. One of the thing one of the worst things this administration has done is separate those children and have no system. Oh, good. Yes. Agreed. One of the worst things this administration has done has been separating children at the border from their families. So far, so good, Hill Dog. <laughs> and have no system that actually would tell you where they are. Uh, okay, I'm like more concerned about the the separation, but I guess I would I would prefer to know where the kids are. I would go, she says, to the big no. tech companies, and I would say, okay, you've got 15 days. Give me a system so that I can keep track of everyone. I'm not going to lose <laughs> anyone. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations, Hillary. Nothing like that has ever been attempted, and nothing bad happened. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, so I think the, the other part of this though, and this is, this is another part of the puzzle is that, uh, even if you reform some of the legal code governing this stuff, what you still have to deal with is regulatory capture 
Yeah. And that capture is both by who is like staffing positions of high power in regulatory agencies. Like the classic example right now is uh, this, this Andrew Wheeler guy who's basically like a coal executive and magnate uh, being tapped to run the EPA. That is like a clear cut example of capture because you have somebody who literally their worldview, their perspective is to sabotage the mission of the EPA. They come from an industry that the EPA is meant to, like regulate and tamp down on. And instead that industry now controls an agency like the EPA. That's one form of, of capture. That's the clearest form. The other form is like ideological capture. And I think this is the essence of a lot of what we mean about like why the neoliberal order tends to like break down and why it seems to be breaking down on every front right now. A thing that happens again and again in the story is that the attorneys and accountants and the accounting firms, attorneys uh, involved in this case are in addition to fighting this delaying action against this IRS like strike team uh, that's that's trying to get this guy to pay his taxes, uh, they're also just going over their heads and talking straight to senior management management at the IRS via the phone or at lots of like conferences in the industry and lots of uh, you know public private events where people like this all meet and network and discuss things informally. And this is a form of capture that I think is more insidious because it's harder to detect. People that the IRS is meant to like regulate, meant to tax, have a direct line to senior management in that institution. And that senior management don't view their job as oppositional. This is the thing that neo- neoliberalism right. likes to pretend that conflict doesn't exist. It's all rational self This is the diner scene. We this win, is it. You Let's win. just sit down in the diner and you, the hyper-billionaire, the, the ultra-wealthy, and me, the regulator, can come to an agreement where we're both happy. But the diner scene ends with... You do what I do. I take down. You do what you do. I take down scores. That's what I do. Yeah, like uh, that's that's the dilemma. Right, and the IRS right. is like, but could you do it a little less or something <laughs> like that? And that's and and that's kind of what we we have happening here, which is this 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 presumption that is foundational to neoliberalism, which is that everything can be made win win. That government regulation isn't there to clamp down on bad actors and curb bad practices. It is meant to facilitate good business, that we can be partners in this. And that is how you end up with an IRS that is run by managers who don't really respond to the needs of their employees and the people trying to bring tax dodgers to justice. But they will take a call immediately from a, you know, like corporate law firm representing a major accounting firm. They will immediately have that conversation and then they will turn around and tell the, uh, you know, ta- the actual like IRS agents to back off that they're being, we too had just harsh. a couple of weeks ago, there was that bit going around. I don't know how it got resolved where Congress is about to pass a bill that was going to ban the IRS from being able to offer a free online tax yeah. filing form because specifically places like TurboTax and others had lobbied where they wanted to protect their interests in keeping things comp. Oh, I mean, like this is that's just like one straight. This is one. That's just one strand to pull on that is like th- that fills this like larger you know uh, inequity we're talking about. But like it was until someone pointed that out, and then like so, uh, several congressional aides were like, "Oh yeah, that does. Yeah, we. Yeah, we should probably pull that. We should you know we should probably pull that because no one's looking. Stuff like that gets in." And then all of a sudden you're looking back and you're like, why the fuck did we stop our own government from allowing people who probably just have a W-2 from just filing with the government and having it taken care of? Uh, 
like, and the, and the other thing is this is often done through a really – so what what that law was actually doing was saying that the IRS couldn't even in the future ever yeah. create an online filing tool. Um, but they note, left in – Note that the group is that calls themselves the Free File Alliance as these groups often do, taking up populist uh, uh, language and rhetoric e- even as they fuck us over. Anyway, sorry. But what they wanted was a guarantee that the current status quo would exist forever, which is that the IRS could in the future if they wanted to. Uh, and this law passed, I think. So, like, now we are, like, the, like I, I'm pretty sure the Democratic Congress like, literally fucked out. Yeah, I, I remember seeing some slight chatter, but I didn't know how it resolved. Yeah, no, itself. I think it went through. Um, by voice vote, so you can't actually track down who voted cool. uh, v- voted on what, uh, and that's a Democratic Congress, right? This is this is like what the blue wave gets us. Uh, but um, what it means is, if for instance, imagine somebody who was really into video games on April fifteenth, realizing, holy shit, I didn't do my taxes. I don't even know where all my tax return forms are. I need an extension. And that person goes and is like, how do I get an extension? The IRS is like, I got you. There's an online tool. You can just file an extension right now through the IRS. You go there. If you make less than, I think the cutoff is 66000 in total income, you can use this free tool directly to the IRS. Just type stuff out and like it, 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 it fills the extension. Mm-hmm. If you make more than that, damn, you've got to print this out and like scan it and mail it. Or, you know, better yet, maybe you should go to TurboTax or maybe. H&R Block mm. and they can take care of it. And so that's that's kind of the model, right? Like it's this pretense of, well, obviously we don't want like working people who make and only people like who make less than $66,000 a year total can be defined as people who work. Uh, you know, we don't want those people to be, you know, bo- bothered with things like, uh, you know, accountants fees and filing fees. But if you make more than that, um, why should you have access to anything to make your life easier? Um, you should have to go through TurboTax. So that's that's kind of how that worked too. Um, it is it is a very rigged system, but the, this story really does kind of pin down how much money is just concealed from taxes entirely. Like it's not enough that uh, ultra wealthy. What tax was the number? Are, that, is there a number early on that's like if we actually were able like they they like theorized how much we're being cheated of in total? It was like something like a hundred and. Twenty billion. Uh, I forget the exact number, but it was. God, it's in here. It is in here somewhere, but I, I do not have it here. It's 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 an unbelievable, like unfathomable amount of money for things that could be used for like public services that is just being cheated out of the American people because we are unwilling to put in like the time and effort to 50, at least deter. If yeah, not. so the top five percent. Sorry, the top point five percent in income account f- uh, for fully a fifth of all the underreported income, according to a twenty ten study. Um, adjusted for inflation, that is more than $50 billion each year in unpaid taxes. Not $50 billion <laughs> in the last 10 years. $50 billion per year that goes and that's, unpaid. And that's not even like – That's you know, people. Corporations. That's people, right. right? That's people. That's people cheating the system. Unreported. That is, that is not, not, not underreported. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, un- underreported. Yeah, under-reported. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? But it's but not like, even yeah, just right. the very visible – loopholes that yes. major corporations yes. use every year to not pay right. anything in in income taxes like it's wild uh. uh the issue of who owes what and whether it's hip- hypocritical for 
a leftist who makes uh, a decent amount of money uh, in you know any one given year, uh, for them to not pay more than they strictly owe under U.S. tax code definitely came Just up. write a check. Just write a check, yeah. Bernie. If you care so much, then write the fucking check. Fuck off. That was definitely the argument, though, being made uh, during a town hall on Fox with uh, Bernie Sanders, of all people. They uh, what, what was it? Brett, Brett Hume? Brit Hume, Hume, and I unfortunately do not know the name of the um, the other anchor that was that was there. Martha, yeah, don't know. Uh, I don't watch Fox. Sorry, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm sure. Like, I, like I, I'm sure lots of people know who those people are. Uh, this I I don't watch Fox, so I was sort of surprised. I, I was like, I, I think I remember Brit Hume's name because uh, it's kind of dumb. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Come on, Brit Hume, like that. That low is key, low key drag from Rob. No, it is. Uh, look, some name. people are just that, destined yeah. to be like the chair, the like, like the uh, when chair you say the, the name Brit Hume, you see it. Yeah. yeah, you that you see his face. Like, yeah, that's Brit Hume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sure. You know, you grew up in a Brooks Brothers uh, baby swaddle. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Bernie went on Fox on on a town hall in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, hosted by Fox News. And the result was, I think, not what we would have expected uh, from a Fox News town hall for for Bernie. Uh, Patrick, did you catch any of this? Did, did did you see what went down? Yeah, I mean, there were clips going. Around. I mean, probably the most like the, the the biggest clip that kind of made the rounds as this went out was uh, a sort of like a, po- a polling of hands of the audience in which uh, Brit Hume asked, like, how many of you. You know, pay for your own health insurance. You know, hands go up. How many of you get insurance through your employer? Hands go up. It's like, well, how many of you would trade that in for a chance to like participate in in Medicare through the government? And like, the vast majority of the audience puts puts their hands up. Um, and you could tell that the uh, you know Brit Hume and and, and the other uh, anchor were genuinely taken aback by like the the amount of that response. And I would like really encourage people to go and just watch. The whole performance. Um, it's really interesting to watch just when Austin spoke earlier about how there is a larger tent for the ideas that we're talking about here. A lot of the ideas we talk about at Waypoint, like this town hall is a great encapsulation, a great demonstration of like what it means to like frame that for an audience in like stark political terms and to engage with that with an audience um, that is uh, hosted in a, in a seemingly hostile environment um, with people you would that seemingly would have been stuffed to the gills by Fox itself mm-hmm. to be hostile to these quote-unquote like evil socialist ideas and to watch them be taken when they are framed in a way that is so different than the way Fox frames it every single day. Um, he earns the audience, not doesn't just earn the audience claps, like hooting and hollering and like people on their feet. Um it's just, it's really, really something. And it does suggest and underscore, as Austin said, how much of a, and, and honestly, Trump underscored this. Yeah. Trump took lots of this rhetoric in a way that was disingenuous because then um, you knew immediately he was going to go in and just, you know, pass things that were in the favor of people of of his class. And, but he, he very much took that same rhetoric and a lot of ways won on that rhetoric in places like Wisconsin Pennsylvania and Michigan, but to see it framed um, from Bernie is just—it's just worth watching outside of just the clips because there's a cadence to the way you deal with the constant reframing 
from an antagonist, hostile, uh, 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 these anchors from Fox News, and the way he kind of like pivots his way out of that, pivots to the it's just it's just a really fascinating look at um, how this might work for a much larger audience as the election. Uh, uh, real quick, not Brit Hume. It was Brett, Brett Byer. Uh, and uh, uh, well, not Brit Brett who you know? replaced Brit Hume uh-huh. at Fox, uh-huh. which I think why like we it was sort of a shell game thing where it was like people love Brit Hume, <laughs> boom Brett Byer, and people were like I see no difference. <laughs> uh, also, Martha McCallum was the other was the other mo- moderator there. There we go. Um, I think that there is uh, so so. I think part of the conversation that I'm sure our audience wants us to have at least a little bit is whether or not this is like g- good for us in the broad sense for someone like Bernie to even engage with Fox as a platform, especially because we have been so protective of our own platform. I think we've said again and again, you know, I have been, I have gotten so many, you know, shitty far right uh, dudes, especially in this space, do the sort of like come debate me, bro uh, tactic. Right. And the Ben Shapiro, the ben Shapiro thing. thing. Exactly. Ben Shapiro, to be clear, has not invited me to go debate him. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, there have been plenty of people who are like, why don't you go talk to Colin Moriarty? Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, never in my fucking Joe life. Rogan Joe Rogan is also sure. like a uh, consistent flashpoint on this. Uh, and and I've always been of the mind that's like, no, because I don't want to give my credibility to those people, uh, to people who whose platform, especially where like anything I say will not reach that specific audience. I think that – so I think that that's like something to think about here, especially when Bernie goes on to a, 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 a show on Fox. Um, but I do think that there's probably worth in trying to unpack it and think about, OK, well, who does he hit here? Who is he working with? He wasn't going on Hannity. He wasn't going on some of the shows that are like pretty outright propaganda. A talking head yeah. show. Yeah. Uh, he's working right. with people there who are more aligned with their news coverage. And I think – I do think that a lot of their news coverage is effectively a smokescreen for what that channel really is. Mm-hmm. It's a way for them to point to advertise or point at those segments and be and then go to advertise and say, see, you shouldn't stop supporting us as a network. We are balanced. It's just that the We're not all white nationalists. Yeah, exactly. That's just sanity. <laughs> um look, we you know, uh Shepard is here and he even says bad things about he says mean things to Trump sometimes. That means that we're just a regular news outlet. And I think that's bullshit. I do think that that's bullshit. And I do understand being frustrated and mad at Bernie for in this specific moment. Like, I, I don't know if you all saw that thread that went around mm-hmm. earlier yesterday that was effectively like we're in a particular moment for Fox News where advertisers are fleeing and they needed anything to point to to show not just ratings bumps, but also that they were not committed to being so insular and so, uh, let's say, racist all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that there is something to be said around that that conversation. Yet at the same time, it's easy for me to come down on that side because, like, none of my parents watch Fox News. No one I deeply care about is enamored or ensorcelled or convinced by that. But when I talk to some of my close friends whose parents have bought in and who are desperate for, like, those people to get any sort of a lifeline out of the muck that they found themselves in, when I think about – my, I, I do have family members who like voted for Trump 100%. When I think about my mom's family who live in like a valley in northeastern Pennsylvania and who like are from an, a former coal mining town and who were brought in and who 
I mean, I have other problems with them, obviously. This does not come from them voting for Trump was not like the beginning of my disconnect with that <laughs> side of my family by any fucking means. One random turn, no, they just happened to vote it's, for Trump. But right. these are people who for 15 years have been watching CNN and Fox News and then increasingly just Fox News as they get angrier, as they get uh, misled. And I don't know that I want to throw away the idea of giving those people a life raft or giving those people a, a bridge by which they can begin the process of reevaluation and self-improvement. Not because I think that all of them will do it. I suspect most of them won't. A friend of ours uh, you know, today, Patrick, basically said, I, I fear the only type of socialism those folks want is one that's tied to a master race. Like, and I think that that's true for a lot of people who, who fall into that camp. Like mm-hmm. the most, the, to, to the degree that uh, you're able to suffer through the shit that Trump said about people of color, specifically about about immigration communities, specifically about Latinx communities, uh, to even be able to be like, oh yeah, that's the racist shit he said. Maybe I don't agree with it, but I'm still going to vote for him. Like, I, fuck off, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. But I do think, or I want welfare, but gee, no welfare queens. Right, yeah, please. exactly, totally, a hundred percent. And these are parts of my problem with parts of that my my family, um, and so. The I, I do think that that's true, but at the same time, there are those people who, for whatever for whatever reason, ended up in a camp where they were caught up in a populist swing, and I want there to be, I think the world is better for having these arguments presented on Fox News than to not and just have that thing continue to be that thing it is. Right. I don't know, I but just, I'm not I'm not like firm on this. I'm happy to hear debate me, bro. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder if like. What is the value, not not what is the value, but what is the legacy yeah. of a conversation like that living on Fox News when you only have anchors that are going to try and tear burning down in like the subsequent coverage? Right. And so if if Fox News had like one center left or left-ish like anchor that could could like reasonably go to bat and have like and demand the respect of like being an anchor and being a host and like living on on that channel otherwise i feel like everything that bernie says like i think the people in the crowd are affected right because they're there because they're like, there yeah, and yeah. they see the impact and they feel um seen and heard because they're they're in the physical space but in terms of the of the of the viewers I wonder what the legacy is if, you know, immediately after the segment closes, all the coverage subsequent <laughs> right. is just shitting on Bernie Sanders um, and just tearing him down. So I, I I agree with you, but I just wonder if Fox is even in a place right now where, like, alternative ideas can even have like a a, a half life no that's i not think you're, just i think like, that's totally yeah. fair i think that's totally fair but i also in the world in which there's a part of me so like one fuck off anyone who's like debate me bro but when someone says like you know what fuck it yeah i'll debate you and then owns them i'm not going to not clap do you know what yeah, i mean for sure. so that's the thing this wasn't this wasn't a debate like no, what you're was right. this was you're interestingly right. to be illustrative of was but but it, it was in, like, it's not like, like the anchors were just ask a question duck out let bernie talk for you know 5 minutes they, there was a back and forth there was a there was a pushback from the anchors but what was so revealing about it and i think for anyone that i think a lot of people's thoughts have changed specifically in regards to like 
Bernie Sanders and like, this is too extreme. Like, I think a lot of people oh, have yeah, come along absolutely. and realizing like, but, 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 but I think when you, uh, especially as this primary is playing out and this, this like vague notion of electability and like, well, what are, what are the Republicans going to do once they get a, get a hold of like Bernie and his socialist ideas? One thing that was so illustrative of in this town hall was just how paper thin the counter arguments are to what he's proposing yeah. and how how easily you can push right past them and like that there's not a lot to what like the basic talking point a Republican is going to have for what Bernie is proposing. Um, and that was really interesting and illustrative in that town hall was very much like, like, is this all they're going to be able to offer in response to this? Because if that's it, like, damn, like th this, that's a really interesting sort of like test bubble of like how things are going to play out because everything they were bringing out is is just shit that's coming off of a talking yeah. point sheet for like the next 18 months. And if my takeaway from that hour long town hall was like, actually there's like just not that much there, which is why you have, you know, complete shit stains like Carl Rove now going to the Wall Street Journal and yeah. writing op-eds saying like, hey, guy, hey guys, actually, mm -hmm. like, ah, like, uh, you know, people seem pretty receptive to this stuff. And he's a disingenuous, disingenuous actor who shouldn't be taken seriously. But there's a grain of truth that I even came away from like a similar thing was like, people should be less worried than they thought. And like, this was a good illustration of why with substance, but he has so much substance behind his ideas that people should be less worried about like what's going to happen to them when they're brought out and debated. So uh, I, I think part of this too is I, I started the year slash ended last year talking about the metagame, talking about playing for the long game and not just trying to get small strategic wins or small you know tactical wins, but thinking about long-term strategic gains. I think this is a case where you can watch this and go, this is disqualifying for me. I don't want to vote for, Ber for Bernie Sanders. I am now not going to vote for him in the primary. I think there are many reasons why you might not want to vote for Bernie Sanders. I, I've been critical about his uh, his gun policy. I've been critical about some of his his policies about uh, foreign affairs and, and international affairs. Like I've been critical around the way he, he, he talks about race. Like I think that he's fucked up plenty of times um, despite the fact that I supported him during the last primary season. Mm -hmm. I also – think that there can be something like this that is at once disqualifying for you as an individual voter, yet also helps shift the window of what American discourse is. I think this is similarly true uh, for what happened in the last campaign cycle where like, like you were saying a second ago, Patrick, the ideas that he was pushing during the primary season last year, this year – they're the they're floor. They're the floor. They're the foundation. No one gets to like, yeah, like we're all. Everyone is not everyone, right? But like the argument for but like that by by and yes. large, Medicare for yes. all, like basic ideas are minimum wage become a lot that of that stuff are, has been right. has come in in such a way that the discourse has changed, even though he didn't win that election. Mm -hmm. um, this is you know similar. You know, we, we lived through the the uh, governorship uh, race here in New York last year. The ways in which having strong leftist candidates can pull the party in that direction and pull the national conversation in that direction is positive for green us. New deal. Writ right, exactly. Writ large, we don't get to a green new deal without there being a strong leftist candidate in the in the last national election. And so, 
I it, it's almost as if the better world for me is the one in which these these sorts of town halls are happening on you know uh, uh, channels like Fox News all the time for candidates who will not win the presidency, but who will continue to open up that possibility space mm. for potential voters in the middle or for potential voters, you know, even for people on the right to start thinking about that stuff in ways where it is not completely verboten, where it is not just immediately assigned to to the realm of impossibility or impracticality. Um, in, in some ways, the thing that I also hope happens is more of these conversations happening on CNN and MSNBC because going into primary season, those are the spaces where we need to target the the question of possibility and the question of what is viable. Like long, long term, yes, the, the hope is that someone who currently switches between CNN and Fox News starts to like understand that, that they are being fucked over by the very party that they are voting for. But the the uh, and I want to be clear, a lot of those people are in fact benefiting from that. Also, there it's not as if only low income folks vote Republican. We know this. We know that lots of rich people also vote Republican. This is not a, a, a also specifically voted for Trump. That's that's it's a myth that it was only low income white collar, you know, blue collar white workers. No, no, it's like white white upper class women that like put Trump absolutely over the, did. so like <laughs> it the, is not only that, but. But the the most the new immediate concern for me is that like I'm looking at the field of dem you know uh, contenders for primary and like I don't really have a favorite quite yet. I have lots of issues with every candidate or or lots of candidates, but no one has come come out swinging in a way where I'm like, yeah, I'm all the way behind you. Um, and those are the conversations that I want to start having now, even though I know it's going to kill me <laughs> for the next year, like. I, we've already started to have them a little bit. I wasn't on the Biden episode, but I appreciated it because it helped put me, put my mind at ease with my, you know, distaste of Biden and my my willingness to move past fuck him. Biden. Thank you, Natalie, in so many words. Literally, fuck Biden. He sucks. Not literally, actually, please. Oh yeah. no, mm-hmm. metaphorically, metaphorically, fuck, fuck Biden. Biden. <laughs> Ooh boy, opposite of that. Words, words. Hate. Are important. Yeah, sound, <laughs> uh, as the podcast critic uh, over on the Washington Post said, oh, sounds yeah. have meanings. <laughs> I forgot. Sorry that you forgot that sounds have meanings. There was an, there was a review once. Of Couldn't be me. Bjork put out an app once because apps were big, and I read a review once on like Slate or somewhere of it. Wait, Bjork, like Bjork. the yeah 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 singer. Yeah, okay. put out an app that was like an album that was an app, okay. and the review included or maybe even started with the sentence like, "Music is an auditory experience." <laughs> like, oh, word? <laughs> Fuck me up, fam. Um, you're right. You know when you just got to hit that word count? Gotta... <laughs> <laughs> that feel when? That feel when. Get the fuck out of here, Brian Eno. We got a, we got, we have a new theory of music. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, in terms of the, oh, damn, like, Bernie's breaking the boycott and throwing Fox News a lifeline. I'm all for boycotting Fox News. I'm not 100% sure that job ex- that network exists to turn a profit. Right. Like right. what like what is the value that Fox News provides? Is it that it is a good item on a corporate balance sheet mm-hmm. or is it a weapon in an ideological war? Right. And this idea that, you know, if we can just get the good companies on our side, boycott Fox News and then we'll just starve the beast. <laughs> That's not why Fox News exists and I'm very skeptical that they wouldn't run that thing at really thin margins or even at a, like even at a bit of a loss to keep reaching the audience they want to and keep feeding them their two, five, 20 minutes of hate. 
uh, every night. Like mm-hmm. that is why that network exists. And I think maybe the one thing that does make me uh, kind of hopeful about like the like what doing something like this might achieve is when you break through the bubble and they're disingenuous of framing of things and actually explain like here's what a national health care plan would look like and why that's not this scary bugaboo version of socialism uh, that you've been fed you know day in day out here's what it actually means you know you don't have to pay premiums that go up every year for shitty insurance and that is a message that might get through but i but i also do tend to agree with natalie that you have one good like i always remember midway through the healthcare debate there was that uh event where obama met with congressional republicans to talk about the aca and their objections it was like streamed with all with all the pages uh like the stacks and stacks of paper uh maybe he was at a he was at a dais and they were sort of he was doing q a with a bunch of republicans and he was just like Mm wrecking them. Uh, it was just a complete demolition of their political positions, uh, you know, what they were, how they were sort of trying to frame the bill. And it was embarrassing for the Republicans, from the Republicans, and they were eager to get them off that stage. And there's a lot of self-congratulation in, like, you know, the in the liberal media, uh, you know, the the daily cost type stuff and, and, and things like that, where it's, ah, uh, like, you know, Obama really taught them a thing or two. And the answer is it doesn't fucking matter. That the type of power you need isn't the sort of West Wing, oh, you owned them with a good talking point thing. It is organizing. It is building a base, base of power among people. Uh, and I, to that end, I don't know that things like Bernie doing a town hall on Fox, uh, you know, makes, uh, you know, really serves that end. I think maybe the thing it's most useful for is demonstrating to other Democrats that, look, this notion you have that, like, the American public is super conservative – uh, is wrong. You're just badly explaining things to them. And even a Fox News audience, if you actually make a case for uh, something more socialist, um, you will be surprised how often that even this group of people you would have considered, uh, you know, rabid right wingers might be sympathetic to some of what you're saying. But I don't think that means go on Fox News every day. And if you own them enough, uh, Brit Hume or Brit Byer, or, you know, uh, Brot, Brottenham, <laughs> or that Brits. dude from Flight of the Concords. Uh, no, that dude's great. I love him. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter like Brit or Brett. Like you're not gonna, you don't own them enough times until you beat the final boss yeah, and build yeah. build democratic socialism. Uh, so I think that's no, that's the, a really good yes, point. Totally, that's that's the that's that's the opportunity and the danger there. The uh, uh, but, real real quick, just to just give us a little more color here on the last thing I want to want to. Uh, one of the things that came out recently because of, uh, you know, it being tax season is specific numbers around companies that avoided their federal taxes and what those numbers look like. Uh, or not avoided in this case, but or, yeah, avoided. Let's say avoided because of tax rebates and stuff. Uh, good one for us. Uh, Activision uh, reports $447 million in income. And what they paid in income tax was negative $228 million dollars they got a a tax rebate of uh 51 percent cool another uh ibm international business machines they make uh computers oh they're 500 million dollars uh in income a u.s income federal taxes of of negative 342 million uh, a 68 percent rebate there um no one pays money on the money that they make except us well uh, just another awesome thing about corporate taxes a lot of times too 
there are a lot of tax write-offs for things like offshoring jobs yep. and closing facilities mm-hmm. and like terminating projects. Like in a way, there's a lot in the corporate tax structure that if you move a lot of jobs outside of a community and send them somewhere else, if you fire a bunch of people, usually there's a way you can go to the government at tax time and be like, look, all the company's been through this year. We've had to make lots of strategic shifts. And uh, our tax code is kind of like awesome. Yeah. High five. High five. Amazon, $11 (laughs) billion, Amazon, rebate of $129 million. $11 billion. Anyway, Pat Patrick? I was at one of my favorite uh, confused Trump exchanges in the last couple of years was someone pointing out, like in that big tax bill, um, was, hey, you know, like your tax bill, it's kind of weird that it like rewards people for like moving jobs overseas. There's always, he's like, no, it doesn't. And then like pulls out like, like, like a statute that explains how you get rebate God. for like putting these like, wow, well, that shouldn't be there. And like, that's just where the conversation yeah. ended. Oh it's like, cool. Yeah. Well, everything is fine. Everything is good. Consume, consume, consume. <laughs> That's video games. Video yeah. games. Am we I should right? go play some video games. Honestly, that sounds all right. I actually have to read this redacted report. So, uh, could we hurry it up? I got some <laughs> black bars to look at. You don't, don't uh, just listen to Vice News tonight. We are. Is it still Live. going on? Still going. They swapped out. They tapped out the first guy for this new person. Okay. Wait, is it is it Vice News tonight or Vice Live? Vice. It's not Vice Live. <laughs> it's it ain't oh, Vice shit. Live. Yeah, yeah. It's right. That would be. I mean, they still have the stuff upstairs. We could just go take over and be like, "Yo, put us on. We're gonna read, put this. waypoints on here." Honestly, mind <laughs> if we freestyle in the studio? Just we got some riffs. We can got we get, some bits. Uh, question: Can we get? Are you still using Lobby One, or can we get that back? Question. Question. Just curious. Just wondering. You usually get things back when yeah, they're taken normally. from Yeah, normally. That's right. That's yeah, how it works. Yeah, you go like, oh, yeah, we'll be totally happy to support this initiative. And then- and What's then up, Viceland viewers? You like Spider-Verse? <laughs> let's talk about it. Uh-huh. Let's, also socialism. Let's be also good socialism. and rewatch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. All right. Waypoint.vice.com. On that note, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Austin, where can people find you? At Austin underscore Walker on Twitter. Natalie. At Natalie Watson on Twitter. Patrick. At Patrick Klopik. And you can find our producer on Twitter at... Twitter.com slash A underscore Cotto underscore appears. That'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. Uh, I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. We'll be back again with... uh, Five-star podcast, five-star runtime. Yeah, so this week you can listen to the (laughs) final, for real this time, final, final Pride and Prejudice episode of Be Good and Rewatch. Oh, that's up, yeah. Yeah. We finished it for real. Yeah, it's done now. When we read a lot of good letters, we'll we, we discuss them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then we're going dark. <laughs> ah, love it. Uh, so hope you'll join us for that and join us again next week for Waypoints. But until then, do not give in to astonishment. And don't forget about Save Point. Yeah.
the end. <laughs> Can you give us some details, <laughs> Natalie? Save point 2019, save 2.0, if you will, is coming May 2nd. I still don't like that. Starts at 12 p.m. Eastern time, and we'll be heading the first 36 hours as we did last time, and then the mods will be taking over the last 36 hours. Um, we're we're doing this in um, uh, for uh, Trans Lifeline this year, and... Uh, it's going to be really fun, and I'm so excited to get in front of a camera and talk to y'all again back and forth instead of me just yelling at you all the time from a microphone. That's what I imagine podcasts are like. It's just you're listening to us, and I don't get to hear what you have to say, so I want to go back to streamies <laughs> where I get to be like, Hi. Have you thought about, like, Twitter? Did you have to say streamies? Streamies. What's wrong with streamies? Streamies feedies. Great. That's what. That's one of my segments for. No, point. it isn't. It's a charity stream. We have to get some things approved. Um, that would be one of them. <laughs> anyway, stay tuned. It's coming very soon. Goodbye to the and ghost more of details Natalie. to follow. We'll be hearing. We'll be hearing more about that uh, over the next week, and uh, eventually we'll we'll be able to have a whole. You know. Forum thread set up for it and everything. You'll have interviews. Oh, it'll be a blast. Uh, and we have a room this year. It is smaller than the last save point room. Yes. <laughs> look, I like Moving cozy. Po- I like cozy streams. It's the, it's the eight room. hour room. Yeah, it's the room we did the eight hour stream in last January. If people remember that, so it should be fun. I won't unplug any monitors this time. No, actually, no promise. Yeah, you can't promise yeah. that. Maybe you'll need me to unplug. Maybe you're like Austin, unplug that monitor and before you'll be it like, blows up. I can't. I made a promise! <laughs> and that's how Waypoint will end. The end. <laughs> Peace? When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I'm oh, sorry, I'm just going to watch the, mo- the, the Mueller well thing here. The Is this fine? And DCC. Are we done? I think we're done. It's hard to read, it seems. Computers and disseminated that data through fictitious online <laughs> All right. DC leaks and Guccifer 2.0. Later, oh, this is important stuff. Guccifer is here. <laughs> Sorry, according to the automatic uh, uh, caption, Goose of Her 2.0. <laughs> Hell yeah. The president and said, I've had a lot of great lawyers like Roy Cohn. He did not take notes. The president very upset that this lawyer would take <laughs> notes. Because <laughs> notes are things you could read. Wasn't that a thing recently? Didn't someone go on Twitter saying that they don't take notes in interviews? Oh, that was different. That was a journalist. Oh, yeah, that was. Remember? Oh remember? shit! What was it? Former EIC of NY Times, right? Uh-huh. That was. Uh, it was like don't take no- notes during interviews. Abramson. I just. It was I Abramson. Just yes. Photographic yes. memory, baby. Hmm. Which is not how that works, <laughs> not actually. How that works. Not even like.
like a fucking recording so I don't need to take notes? Like, no, it was nothing. Nothing. <laughs> no. Uh, and as we all know, the New York Times doesn't make mistakes. Never. Anyway. Look, did you read that Washington Post article? Which one? It's the one about how millennials are killing podcasts or music, rather. No, that's. It's yeah. not. It was not. Podcasts, podcasts are killing. Are killing music. Why? You you are minimizing the shittiness <laughs> of that case. Yeah, it's actually it's actually it's way worse fucking than worse than that. What it's, is it? God, you should just read it. I don't link you to it. Yeah, you got it. You have the link. Wapo. I stand behind my tweet yesterday saying it's one of the strangest it's one of takes the, I've ever read. Right, that's the thing. It's actually a weird take more yeah. than a. Then it like it doesn't it doesn't come across as clickbaity. This person genuinely believes this. Yes, I just don't understand it. So drill wrote it. Uh, it would be better written. <laughs> Podcasts <clears throat> are bad because podcasts sound bad, and podcasts sound bad because podcasters aren't thinking hard enough about what their talk sounds like. Well, I've Which heard a lot of people say that to me on the internet. The summarization of the <laughs> mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. Like, Washington Post even had trouble finding, like, what's the fuck? I don't even know what the fuck to put in mm-hmm. as the quote. Because mm-hmm. this take is too weird. Are podcasts killing music or just wasting our time? The worst bit about this whole piece is that... Should we just start recording? Yeah, we are recording. You should, recording. Be, you should be Hold recording. On, time. Okay. Are I'm you not... not no. Patrick, this is where we get the outtakes. This is the good stuff. I start recording before we do time dot is. That's that's my life. I'm I'm following the rules. Mm. Uh, Don't worry, I have a backup running. As typical as Patrick. Thank you. Which is what? <laughs> following those rules, <laughs> waiting for the authority figures to give you permission to hit record. <laughs> my favorite thing about this take uh-huh. is that it is. You know, you know when you have a bad take and then you're like, I just got to tweet through it. I just got to tweet through it. I got to tweet through it. You've never had a bad take. See, so I don't that's... think this is this. Yeah. I th- my no, my point is, is that's what it should have been. Mm. And instead, right. what he did was I'm going to double down and write a whole piece so that because it starts as a bad Twitter thread. He made a bad Twitter thread in January. And then this Whoa, this is a Washington Post opinion piece about a Twitter thread. Yes. About a Twitter thread he wrote. God, new Which, media well, but, but, uh, Okay, hold on, hold on, hold uh-huh. on, hold on. Mm-hmm. So there, mm-hmm. there is a process that all of us go through. In fact, it is one that I ascribe to this. Yeah, like, you tell us. You're a fan. Here, which is that, which is that uh, often when you write a tweet thread, it is actually like an actual like piece of criticism yes. or an essay that you should like sit down and think through. But, but, the but is here is that that exercise often, maybe not often, but like can sometimes lead to you discovering actually all I had to say was in the tweet, not not I had something like much longer. But you know what's difficult is writing 1,200 words and then telling yourself, actually, this is bad. No, what's easier <laughs> is to hit publish, hit publish instead of on. hitting delete. God, Wait, I've he, killed so many 1,200-word things, though. Oh, This is 1,700 yeah, words like, also. I checked. <laughs> well, he, he spent like 600 words setting up like, well, I'm yeah. about to kick a hornet's nest. He, he Which, like, literally if that's how you set up your piece. Recommends a podcast in this piece. Yep. Is it his? No, it's <laughs> some ways of hearing. And he's like, yeah. it's a podcast, now a book. Blah, 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 blah. 
I've been pushing ways of hearing on my loved ones, promising we'll refresh their notions about how we listen to this world, podcast included. Uh, does ways of hearing sound better to my eardrums because Krakowski brings this musician's care and finesse to the gig? Fuck off. Sounds have meaning. Good quote. Fuck off. Yeah, this is trash. I'm anxious about music seeding all that time and turf to the rise of big podcasts. Yeah, how about you fuck off? I'm I anxious mean, if music about... music is concerned, we need more, like, rock and folk rock, epic-length songs no, 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 you guys, about he's a famous pop... homicide cases and crime lords. He's a pop music critic. It's in his byline. That is... Oh. It says it right there. He it says loved... it right um, there. Um, this is just, like... Because, uh, like, the version of this that I like better is recorded music is is taking all the time away from your internal thoughts. No one should be listening to music. It's You're, you're ceding your internality, your, your interiority to listening to music. Like, that was the version of this take 80 years ago. <laughs> it used to be that the women in your life would play music for you, uh, intelligent, educated man reading this op-ed. But now there is a phonograph and they don't have to do it. Uh, Down with the piano forte. Right, right exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, this is Socrates being like, I think writing is bad, actually. Yep. I think, you know what? We used to think about things and have discussions, but now you just write stuff down. You don't even, now you just use a GPS. <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, what's also, that? I'm sorry that none of, that not everyone who makes a podcast can afford a, like, a state-of-the-art recording booth. Or, and like a sound engineer to make, but he's not. All, but that's mm. that's the thing. Like if he says he isn't doing like, that, but that is what he's doing. He says that's right. not what he means. Right. But it right. is what he right. means. I know it is what he means. Like if you actually wanted to say, like, look, as a, as like a, a a music critic, this is like such a charitable like like reinterpretation. Yes, you're like, doing it. Like it, you know, it's like hey, like the podcast form is so young, and like look where the different yes. experimental ways music has gone. Like I'm excited as someone that's uninterested in podcasts now. As someone that experienced a lot of music, I mean, that's just, there's, there, but like, no, that's not what he wrote. That's not what he wrote. Mm. He would tell you that's what he wrote. That's not mm -hmm. what he wrote. Sigh. God. Anyway. I mean, what is the hurricane except Crime Town in song form? <laughs> <laughs> that's how we beat Big Podcast. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mark Knopfler, I need a 16-minute epic <laughs> telling the story of a dying industrial town in northern England uh, and a wave of crime that swept through there. And Mark Knopfler's like, done. You got it. Here's right. some beats. What I love is that is that you could get um, uh, you get the Mountain Goats to do an epic story-focused uh, uh, concept album. And then also you could listen to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats about that, <laughs> that podcast or about that album. <laughs> That would be ideal, John. John, if you're listening, go do that. Uh, all right. But never forget. Wait, Sound John, his name's Chris. No, John, John Danielle from the Mountain Goats. Oh, okay. Who is cool. Shall we clap in? Shout outs. Podcast. Shout outs. All right, yeah. Let's do uh, a clap. I'm on time. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, you don't need more time, Austin. You just need to decide. Yo, don't say that to me this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fucked up time dot is quote. All right. Uh let's go for eleven. 
like it. That was fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to go faster, but I didn't want to. I could have done 10. I could have done 10. I was going to go nine, but I didn't think Ooh. you guys I missed it. All right. And I definitely would have missed nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, shit. There's no one on the show. Wait, who? No one's here. Add some things real quick. We're all reading. Oh. <laughs> if it's not written in the document, then it doesn't exist. Doesn't. That's true. I've said Rob that can't re- what, we're, what we're now understanding is Rob can't remember our names. <laughs> you got it. That's me. All right, there Keep we go. Keep this part in, Kato. Second Russian intelligence service conducted. Okay. Mm-hmm. There'll be none of that now. Yes, there will. Oh, there be, absolutely yeah, will Rob, be. Rob, Rob, we're going to be pumping to quotes today. during this whole pod. Uh, it's got to go like that today. It's got to. This is a historical document. We are telling the truth. And the truth is, the investigation also identified numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and work to secure the outcome, and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released to the Russian uh, efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Like, they both were like, this is good, but they didn't necessarily write down or say out loud, this is good, (laughs) and make plans around it. But this is the frustrating thing. This is like the big finding of this report is stuff that was obvious in real time yes! at the time. Yes! Certainly was obvious a week or two after the election. And again, the entire like collusion narrative, like it's one of those things where if someone commits a crime basically in the open and we're like, damn, we just need to find the smoking gun, the secret information <laughs> where they showed intent. And like you got uh, Trump being like, we love WikiLeaks, like all that fucking bullshit. <laughs> Uh, as Jake and Bryant. Upon, upon learning of Mueller's appointment as special counsel, the president apparently said, oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm <laughs> fucked. Uh, uh, Jake, Jake. That's not real. Uh huh. Jake Bryant here, uh, just a Twitter user in response uh, says, and this is just, you know, an interpretation. Although money and goods were given to the office holder who then used his official powers to benefit the businessman, we can't show quid pro quo. That's basically what's happening in this report. Is like, although that, also, here is that, mm, that line is very relevant to a piece to we're going to discuss this yep. week. Yep. <laughs> <sighs> we're in it. Rob? Rob, can you give us an intro? Can we do a podcast? <laughs> Will I be allowed to record one? You'll be allowed to record. <laughs> I can, we can't control what you say. We can just allow you the, the you know the process to begin. I think that this three, should be three, ex- two, one. 